the two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes, even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff, one episode just saying enough. Get a little after and an interview too. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. And with me tonight is my co-host, straight out of Brooklyn, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing tonight, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, other than being stuffed from yesterday. I, gotta tell I you. know, you know, something I feel about five or ten pounds fatter. Thank God for yeah. these stretchy uh, jeans I'm wearing, you know, but... Uh, Look, Thanksgiving is always great being around family and friends and, and you know, letting yourself indulge. I know you probably were uh, at that pot of sauce for a couple of days before stirring it up with that big, he has like a shovel-sized spoon that he uh, <laughs> that he stirs that sauce pot with. You, but, you, uh, know, you know, it's funny, Billy, <laughs> we normally don't have uh, Italian on Thanksgiving, but my father-in-law requested from my wife, uh, Sicilian meatballs, which have raisins and panoli nuts in them, along with the sauce. So we did have that. I tasted it. I, I, there was just so much food. Um, I, I'm very thankful for my family. We had a lot of people over the house yesterday. We had a great time. Uh, tons of food left over. And uh, I got to try and watch the, the waistline. I put on I put on uh, sweatpants, Billy, to eat. I think I was telling you, I, I eat clothes. But uh, the elastic waistband. strategy. I, I let yeah. myself go a little bit. But. You know, I actually did a preemptive strike, and I took a uh, spin class on Thanksgiving morning. And I'm actually supposed to go back and do a spin class tomorrow to get back into the swing of things before uh, yeah. this five pounds becomes a permanent five pounds. But anyway, a lot of stuff going on. And folks, I just also want to uh, implore you, if you're not subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring the bell, give us a thumbs up. And uh, I want to thank all of our Patreon members, all of our channel members. You are the guys that keep us going, keep us alive. Believe it or not, this it does cost some money to do this podcast. And I really appreciate all you guys that are supporting us and from all over the world. Uh, today, I didn't do my... Um, Coffee with Cannon show. I figured you could use a break from me for a day. And uh, so, but but we are going live, uh, of course, tonight. Now, we'll go, what we're going I want to give a shout out, Bill. I don't mean to interrupt you. I want to give a shout out. Listen, everybody, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Everybody, I'm sure there's a lot of people with a lot to be thankful for. And I want to give a shout out. There were two police officers that were shot in the NYPD on uh, Wednesday evening, Thanksgiving Eve, out in the Bronx. Police officer Alejandra Jacobs, a female police officer, and police officer Robert Holmes, uh, true heroes. Uh, they approached the guy with a gun. The guy whipped it out, started firing. Uh, she was struck in the arm, and her partner was struck in the chest. She was released from the hospital yesterday. Um, they actually did light up the guy that shot them, and uh, I think he's still alive, but uh, they did a, a great job. True, Two really uh, heroic police officers in the NYPD, and 
God bless them. And I'm sure that those families could have turned out very differently, Billy, as you know. And uh, big thumbs up to them. And God bless them. And uh, true NYPD heroes almost didn't make it through uh, to Thanksgiving. But thank God they did. And they're on the mend. You know, 100%. Imagine spending um, Thanksgiving morning in the hospital with a gunshot wound. I mean, uh, just horrendous. But as you say, it always can be worse. Sure. And this, in this instance, both officers survived. And we give a thumbs up and thank God that they did because that's not always the case. And that uh, specter of uh, giving your life uh, for the city of New York is always there. Not that anyone wants to give their life for that, but a, a police understand the real risks and the real risks are out there. And, uh, you know, we've discussed this a million times. They have to use such restraint and sometimes that restraint can hinder them. And it just takes a split second uh, to lose a gunfight, you know, and uh, not in any way am I implying that these two officers lost it, but just that they uh, they got shot, you know, and uh, it's just a horrible thing. And we're just praying and we're so happy that they survived this. Yes, uh, definitely. And, you know, moving on to this, we're, we're, we're sort of late into this story because we were covering the Kyle Rittenhouse story. But this, of course, is the story of um, Brian Laundrie and, and Gabby Petito. And definitively, the results of the autopsy came back. And, you know, there's, there's two things you hear in, in homicide investigation is manner of death and cause of death. And everyone, of course, was waiting. What was the manner and what was the cause of death? So um, the, the anthropologist, uh, together with the pathologist, ruled that definitively the manner of death uh, was suicide. And the cause of death was a gunshot wound. Now, Phil and I are not from the scientific world of investigation. We're more of uh, that, which is the science of investigation. And we say investigation is an art and a science. And Phil and I are more from the art form of investigation. We're talking to people, are looking at the crime scene, speaking to the experts, and again, canvassing and using interview and interrogation, which is one of the, the most important things in homicide investigation. Now, in this instance, it the answer had to come from the science of investigation. And as we were told, and we can only rely on what we were told, the best information we were told, because we're not at the crime scene. We don't get to see the crime scene photos. We don't get to see the crime scene up close and personal. From what we were told, what was recovered was skeletal remains. And one, one part of the skeletal remains, of course, was the skull with the um, dentition, the, the, the dental work intact. So early on in this, uh, Brian Laundrie was positively identified from his uh, dental work. That wasn't enough for the, um, the YouTube and the Facebook and the uh, pop culture crowd. They were saying, oh, they planted those bones there, which I, I took to be utterly ridiculous. So he was initially identified from his dental work. That was okay with me. I believe that cartoon characters like Dog, they were trying to throw something else into this game. But now definitively, 100%, he was identified by DNA. So not only was he identified by dental work, but he was identified by DNA. So we are now 100% satisfied or whatever um, DNA is, is like 2 billion to 1 or 20, I don't know the exact algorithm, but it's it's billions to 1. 
that it's him. So now we have to look at the fact, what physical signs are there that it was in fact a gunshot wound? So again, not being there, not being an anthropologist, there's going to be signs in the skull of a tremendous explosion and uh, destruction of bone matter in the skull. And if the firearm, which in most suicides, the firearm is pushed right against the skull, or believe it or not, people put it inside their mouth. Now, we don't know. We're not told where he fired it, all right? But if he pushed the gun up against his head, when a gun fires flame and soot and something called stippling comes out of the end of the barrel, and it can actually leave what's called a tattooing effect on the skin and actually on the bone from the flame coming out where it leaves an imprint of the barrel of the gun. Now, that could be there. Also, deeply inside the skull could be um, ballistic evidence. Even the round, if the round never exited the skull, the projectile could still be inside the skull, and that could aid in the police, the FBI, ballistics experts, positively identifying the gun. Because I believe, now if it's a suicide, the gun should be on the scene, right? Uh, I believe that it probably was, and the FBI and the police Whoever it is, they recovered the gun, and they're doing their their ballistics tests and uh, testing the ballistics, for whether it was a projectile, against the gun that was recovered. Additionally, I've said this on other shows, it's very, very difficult to lift fingerprints off a firearm. And one of the reasons is, is because fingerprints are made from the oils in your skin. When a firearm is discharged, it gets very, very hot. That dissipates those oils and destroys fingerprints. In a 10-year period, the NYPD tested hundreds and hundreds, maybe even a 1,000 guns, and they had less than a 1% lift ratio of fingerprints off of guns. But you know what is actually easier to lift or they are more successful at? The DNA. So there's potentially they could have swabbed the uh, trigger guard of the gun, and they possibly could have recovered DNA. Don't forget the gun was out there in the elements for approximately five weeks. So that's that could still happen, but it's also uh, not a sure thing that they recovered DNA from the gun. My biggest question is, um, they ruled this a suicide. A, uh, was there a note on the scene? Did he leave a note with indicating that he was going to commit suicide? B, how did they determine if there was no note? How did they determine scientifically that he, in fact, pulled that trigger? Very, very difficult because the body was not there. There was no there was no soot. I don't think his arms and his hands were ever recovered because it was probably, uh, it was exposed to the elements. It was probably eaten by animals. So how did they determine that he, in fact, uh, pulled that trigger. That's one of the problems that I have with that. Uh, as far as all the scientific evidence, um, the tattooing on the side of the skull, uh, projectile possibly recovered inside the skull, soot, gunshot residue recovered inside the skull, all of that is potentially uh, scientifically they did recover that. However, how does that prove that Brian, in fact, pulled the trigger? How do we make that a suicide and not a homicide. And we talk about circumstantial evidence. Circumstantially, I would say, besides the physical evidence, yeah, probably he did kill himself. 
But I would like to know from an investigator, from a scientist, how did you deduct that he committed suicide? Go ahead, Phil. I know you're dying to jump in. Oh, there's a few things I just wanted to go over. Number one, um, <clears throat> right off the bat, you talked about uh, the firearm being recovered. Now, naturally, if someone, uh, you know, they, they, they're they going to commit suicide, a self-inflicted gunshot wound, if you shoot yourself in the head, your hand is going to drop, the gun is going to remain at the location. Now, we did know from previous shows that we did an investigation, there was uh, different things reported. There was water in the area. So the, the, the skull may have, whatever body parts were recovered may have been removed from the area where the actual shooting took place. But I know extensive search was done in that area. So maybe the gun was recovered. That's one thing. You brought up the point about whether or not DNA could be found four or five weeks in the elements the water uh, interdicting into the crime scene that may preclude any DNA evidence. However, it may not. It is still a possibility of that. But you brought up a very good point, Billy, about fingerprints off of guns. And we talked about this previously. Fingerprints off guns aren't very likely. There's several reasons you talked about how fingerprints are made from the oils in your skin and it leaves a, a, a mark when you touch something. However, uh, a gun usually has a coating of oil on it, so it would be smudged. There might be all the different factors that you brought up about the uh, the heating of the gun as well when you fire a gun. And then uh, the elements, uh, the water would also help to dissipate any fingerprints if there was water. And, that, and it's a marshy land, it's a swamp, so there could be all types of uh, you know dirt, grime, uh, all of this uh, swamp material that would be in there. So all of those things, how are we getting to a suicide so quickly? Now, you brought up another great point, the stipula stippling on the far uh, on the skull or, or the, the matter that was recovered, whether it be uh, a self-inflicted gunshot wound into the mouth or into the side of the head. You know, there's a great amount of residue that would be left. Uh, again, skin would be uh, perforated in a way you mentioned tattooing, stippling, all of those things I'm sure were being looked at. And um, if a bullet enters through a skull, there would be bone fragments that would be dispersed inside the skull. So these are all indicators of a bullet wound. Now, we're not going right to a self-inflicted gunshot wound. That only means that uh, you can tell if the gun was pressed up against a person's head we still don't know who pulled the trigger. So we got into those areas in uh, previous shows, and we're going to talk about it again today. Do we believe that there was something more than just, uh, you know, the skull found with a bullet wound that led them to jump right to suicide, which is the, the manner of death? Um, there had to be other things, in my opinion. I'm sure that the FBI and the local police have been keeping things very close to the vest. Um, there was allegedly a collection of guns that the family, that the laundry family had. One of the guns was missing, which would indicate that might be the gun that was used. If in fact it is a suicide, which we believe it to be, they've named it that. So you have all of those factors. And then there was other things that were recovered at the scene that they're not really talking about. We know his backpack was recovered. They said a notebook. So maybe there was actually a suicide note. Um, uh, leaning towards that because of all the other things that we talked about. How do we know that Brian fired that shot? He's out in the wilderness. His body is recovered weeks later. The skull is uh, part of the remains and there's obviously a bullet wound to the skull. The uh, ballistic evidence like you talked about, Billy, could remain in the skull, uh, you know, in the brain or wherever. And that could be compared against the gun uh, if it's recovered 
or even there may be a, a chance that they can, uh, you know, possibly somewhere along the line have a uh, another round that was fired from the collection of guns, and they can compare it to that. So these are all the things that we believe are going on that aren't reported. It would seem almost uh, very likely that there was a suicide note, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this. Maybe in that note, was there something that he talked about related to the death of Gabby Petito? You know, Phil, one of the things that uh, everyone in the chat is also saying, oh, where's the gun? Where's the gun? I firmly believe that the FBI has the gun right now, and I'm going to tell you a couple of reasons. One, they um, enacted several search warrants early on in the investigation. One of the things they could definitely do was uh, get all the guns they had. It says when on your gun registry that you have ten guns. Say, where's the uh, where's why is there only nine? You're missing one. You're missing, and I'm just this is just conjecture by me. You're missing a 38 caliber revolver. Where is that? Of course, they can't question them because they have uh, they have a lawyer client privilege there. They in, uh, inducted their right to counsel. However, they can deduce that fact by we 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 um. At a search warrant, they only gave us nine guns. The 10th one is missing. Potentially, Brian could have that gun. That could be the gun that he used if he, in fact, did commit suicide. Then they test. They, they If the gun is recovered on the scene, they check the serial number. Voila, that's the missing gun that belongs to the Landrys. So mystery solved if, in fact, that they really did um, recover that gun, which I think they probably did because you don't hear – law enforcement talking very much about it. And the FBI uh, releases almost nothing. You know that. Uh, I, I want to play a, a short, I want to share this video just to bring the whole flavor back to this. I don't flavor is the right word, but uh, to, sh to show where, where this case was, where it is right now. Let me just play this here. Tonight, a new revelation in the Gabby Petito saga. Roughly a month after her fiancé's remains were found in a Florida nature reserve, the medical examiner said Brian Laundrie died from a gunshot wound to the head, and his manner of death was suicide. The Laundrie family attorney releasing a statement writing in part, Chris and Roberta are still mourning the loss of their son and are hopeful that these findings bring closure to both families. Laundrie was named a person of interest in Petito's disappearance, whose body was later found near a campsite in Wyoming. The coroner announced a 22-year-old was strangled to death. Their story captivated the nation. I love you, man. The pair had been on a cross-country road trip chronicling their journey before Laundrie returned home to Florida alone. Shortly after Petito was reported missing by family, Laundrie vanished too. Body cam footage released by Moab police revealed a domestic dispute between Petito and Laundrie before she went missing. The footage shows an officer questioning Petito after police pulled over the couple's van. You, you slapped him first and then just on his face? The FBI led a weeks-long manhunt for Laundrie before his remains were found in the Florida wetlands. The Laundrie family lawyer Steve Bertolino spoke with Top Story the day his remains were identified. Did your clients know their son, Brian Laundrie, was going to disappear when he left the house that day? No, they did not. What I can tell you is that Brian was very upset when he left. Petito's family had previously called out the Laundrie family directly. Anyone that lived in that house is a coward. And they don't know how to stand up for their actions. Telling Dr. Phil they believe the Laundries were withholding information. Somebody needs to start talking. 
I do believe they know a lot more information than oh, yeah. putting out there. There are still questions as to how Laundry's remains were found. What do you say to all those people out there who say this is a really a strange coincidence? Both parents go out, mother and father, and then suddenly these big clues turn up, including what we now know are the remains of Brian Laundry. This area was waist deep in water. I think every searcher who was out there will attest to that. And yet still, John Q. Public can't get it in their head that these areas were inaccessible and the items that were located perhaps couldn't be seen. NBC News reached out to the Laundry family attorney for comment, but he's declining all interviews at this time. All right, Kathy joins us now in studio. And Kathy, we should remind viewers that some of Brian's belongings, like his notebook, were found near his remains, and they could hold more clues. Yeah, that certainly is a hope. So the FBI, they're still the lead investigating agency on this case, and they're trying to piece together this notebook. But keep in mind, it was underwater for quite some time, so they still have a, a lot of work to do. But yeah, it could hold some critical clues and perhaps explain how this tragedy unfolded. And as far as the, the timeline here, when Brian died, that we still don't know. Correct. That we don't know. We do know October 20th is when his remains were found. He was ID'd the following day, but the full autopsy is still is still pending. But we should know in a couple of days. Okay, Kathy Park for us tonight. Kathy, we thank you for You know, Phil, it's funny when you look at that uh, video. I don't think that um, really any anthropologist, any pathologist could tell us with any uh, great uh, clarity when he died. I don't think that's one of the tests that you can test on bones. There's no tissue there. I don't think that the time frame is really, We I think we know that uh, he left his home uh, to go into the Mayakahachi Preserve on either the, the 13th or the 14th. The parents initially said September 13th, and they said the 14th. So it's somewhere between that time and when they found the body. But as far as any scientific test, look, time of death is a very difficult thing to determine under best circumstances. But when you recover skeletized remains, I think it's nearly impossible. I think you're going to have a, uh, a ballpark figure. I mean, if he's found on the 20th and he's skeletonized, I mean, it's obvious he wasn't killed or died the day before. So you're going to get a ballpark figure. But there was something right in the beginning of that report that I thought was very telling, Bill. If you uh, were listening, the report says that the, the lawyer, Stephen Bertolino, for the Laundry family said, I hope it brings closure to both families. What is he saying there? Is he admitting that you now have closure, that he killed himself based on the fact that he killed Gabby? I, I might be reading into that a little bit, but he went out of his way to say that. I hope this brings closure to both families. Now, I don't think the Petito family is ever going to have closure. Closure to me is, is uh, I don't know, closure would be if she came back alive. That would be closure. I don't think that in this situation is going to be closure for any family. I mean, uh, you know, it sounds like Brian went out of the house, went into the Mayakahachi Preserve. He probably had a firearm on him. It's, I mean, all the indicators are there. And, you know, they're, they're calling it a suicide. There's obviously something behind the scenes going on that we don't know that we can't actually say 100% report on, you know, like a suicide note or something of that nature. But I think that that lawyer saying that, that said something to me. That was a, uh, he, he went out of his way to say that closure for both families. I think he's basically letting the uh, Petito family know, you know, 
yeah, he did it and he killed himself. That's what it sounds like to me. I could be wrong. I might be reading into it, but that's the message I'm getting. I don't think any attorney's giving you any clues like that. It could be what's called a Freudian slip. Okay. But I don't think he's. Okay. Uh, let me just go play a little bit of this video. This is actually from our buddy, Duty Run, who did a deep dive into this case with uh, Ed Wallace. This is just showing the parents uh, near the Carlton Preserve, the Mayakachi Preserve, where his remains were discovered. Uh, I just want to play a bit of this. Uh, Avery Shannon, thank you so much for that $5 super chat. Much appreciated. Um, again, I don't think anywhere in the country or in New York City for sure would we allow that to happen. That bag would be like, oh, man, you just have to give that to me. Um, I don't know. Well, yeah, and, th and this apparently is when they were notified by this officer that they had found something and the, they recommended they go home. Phil, what they're talking about here is that uh, they opened the uh, Carlton uh, Reserve one day to everyone, and the laundry family, uh, uh, Chris Laundry and his wife, went into the preserve, and they immediately went to the area where they knew that uh, Bri uh, Brian was, and they recovered uh, the backpack and what was called as a dry bag. In the dry bag appeared to be a something heavy like a firearm, or someone was seen I think Roberta Laundrie was seen picking up something black that appeared to be a firearm, which was witnessed by a reporter from Fox. Now, first of all, when would you ever allow the family members of a decedent to go into the crime scene and search it without supervision of law enforcement? So something about that doesn't seem okay. And I think that, um, a lot of you know, a lot of questions come from that, and uh, let's let's just continue with the. Uh... They had found something, and the, they recommended they go home and stay. In, they'll stay. They'll contact them after um, later with more information about what they found. Yeah, so uh, a little bit bizarre um, uh, tech, you know, like technique, if you will. I think that's a good word for it. Like you know, it wouldn't be something that you or I would be. Uh, doing here in New York City, and I don't think anywhere else. Uh, but they, they. This is a uh, copy of the um, the medical examiner's report, uh, and it talks about the um, the uh, the scene response of the medical examiner, the forensic anthropologist, and this is in fact what led to uh, the, you know them, of course, identifying the remains of Brian Laundry and many people with many questions because initially the identification only occurred uh, through uh, dental examination. And then I was seeing on uh, social media, Oh, the dentist was his uncle. I'm just like, where did they get that from? You know, it said clearly in that report, DNA and dental records. So it's him. I mean, that's not even 100%. There's no, no question about that. No, now I, I don't think there's any question about that, but, Many of the questions, I think, occur because there isn't a lot of information or accurate information being released yeah. by the FBI or law enforcement. So that leads to conjecture. It leads to many people filling in the blanks that may the blanks may not be correct, but they're filling in the blanks uh, because they're frustrated. Uh, you know, for example, we were never told, in fact, that a firearm was recovered. 
So people are filling in the blanks and saying, well, if he died from a um, from a gunshot wound, self-inflicted, there, there must be a gun on the scene. Joe Murray, thank you so much for the 999 Super Chat. The criminal case is still open and the warrant is still active. The ME press release indicated the reports related. The laundry's death may not be made public until law enforcement investigation is complete. But, you know, the law enforcement investigation could be could stay open for years because minus and, you know, we, we've discussed this before on, uh, on our show, Phil, that on the NYPD after a certain amount of time, we could clear a homicide case with a clearance called exceptional clearance. You want to elaborate on that, Phil? Sure. Uh, if there's a, uh, a case where a person is killed and you have all indicators, all circumstantial evidence, maybe it's, uh, physical evidence that indicate uh, a subject or a perpetrator of that specific homicide, however that person is now dead, or there might be some other uh, extenuating circumstances, but you can put enough details together in a report stating that the homicide took place on this date. This was the cause of death and the manner of death. And these are the indicators. These are the witnesses. And therefore, based on all of these facts, we feel that this is the person that's responsible for the murder. However, that person is dead or whatever the case may be. And um, we request that this case be closed with an exceptional clearance. That's not saying that it's justified or anything like that. saying that we believe after all investigative leads have been followed, uh, we believe that this person's responsible for responsible for the crime. However, that person's not available due to they're dead or whatever the case may be. They could be incarcerated for life. You can do an EC on something like that where a person's, you know, facing 10 life sentences. We know that they're involved in this murder. We're not going to take it to court. We're going to close it out. Exceptional clearance since they're doing, you know, uh, 10 life sentences or whatever it is. So there's different areas that, um, different scenarios rather that uh, you can close a case out exceptionally cleared. You know, the biggest questions uh, and the questions that everyone's going to have, and I don't think even the science will uh, will answer these. And in fact, tonight, Duty Run uh, has on uh, a doctor who he's previously had on the show, an anthropologist, and as, as well as Ed Wallace. Uh, I think it's uh, Dr. Marks at 8 p.m. tonight. So I encourage everyone that's listening to us now to go on Duty Run's channel tonight. And they do a much deeper dive. As I said, Phil and I uh, are not the scientists of investigation. We're the art form. You can see we're very artsy, you know. <laughs> and uh, our, our expertise is in the police, the police part of it, which is, you know, interview, interrogation, securing interview, the crime scene, right. and more interviews, uh, yeah. speaking to the family members, which wasn't going to happen in this case. Also observation, Billy. I mean, a lot of times as an investigator, you, you could just observe things, pick up things based on that. I mean, the science is obviously very, very important in homicide investigation. But just from looking at that video, if you looked at Brian's father, he had wet pants just about below the knee, which would indicate he was in a marshy area. He was in a wet area. And I think what happened is they knew he was in the area. He left. He said he was going there. They hadn't heard from him. There was no contact made. He had been missing for an extended period of time. The park was now reopened. So they said, hell with it. We're going to go look for ourselves. And that's how all of those events took place. And that video of uh, that, that you showed from Duty Ron's uh, episode, uh, it looks like, it, I, I don't know, to me, it looked like they were all three, the, the law enforcement officer and the mother and father looking at 
Uh, it looked like they were looking at a telephone. They were trying to catch the angle where the sun wouldn't be hitting it. So maybe there was something videotaped. Either they videotaped it was shown to the law enforcement, or it looks like more likely that the law enforcement officer was showing something to them. So that was the day that uh, his remains were recovered. And uh, again, you're talking about what we do, the art form, just based on what I just said, that's part of investigation. I picked up on that from looking at that video. You know, it's uh, a lot of it is observation, you know? Well, Phil, no doubt you were paying attention because of course, observation is a huge thing. And uh, in fact, uh, Chris Laundry did, go into the marshlands looking for stuff and he did they did find some uh they did find that dry bag and they found some other things belonging to brian i just want to quickly and just more more for my own amusement show a little bit of um the video of the day that i visited the maya kahachi preserve and uh, there there i am on screen a little short walk a little tour We'll walk through some of the same places that uh, I was walking through. Seems pretty beautiful, right? I'm not seeing any lions and tigers and bears on my yet. <laughs> along the path here. <laughs> so you guys, uh, Lisa Thompson. Hi, hello everyone. Yeah, this is um, where Brian Laundry uh, apparently was found in the north. Uh, Northport, Florida, and this is the Mayakahatchee Preserve. I'm just going to walk a little bit. I'm not too familiar with these, and I don't want—I don't want to run into any alligators, you know. I just wanted to show uh, some action footage there of me in the Mayakahatchee Preserve, but it is all every bit as like foreboding as it looks. It's—it's it's a little bit scary. I mean, when you think of the uh, amount of animals in there, and I've seen some of the the cameras they have in there that just catch these feral pigs at night that just, they're gigantic and they're scary. And then the alligators and the snakes and all of that stuff. So uh, I wasn't so brave going in there. I was a New York city cop out of my element, you know? <laughs> yeah. And you're not strapped. Uh, no, and I wasn't strapped. I, 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 I didn't mean, even have a stick with me. <laughs> yeah. If an alligator sneaks up on you, at least you got a oh, shot. I, I was in trouble. The only help I had was that I was videoing it, and maybe my fans would say, hey, the alligator just ate cannon. <laughs> God forbid. God forbid. I got to tell you, though, those wild boar, uh, I think you described it as a feral pig, but they, they're also known as wild boar. Uh, I had a relative that hunted those, and they those animals are very, very scary. They're strong. And I think, uh, you know, unless you hit him in the head with a shot from a gun, uh, that thing may still be coming at you. You know, they don't normally uh, attack humans, but if you, if they're threatened in a way uh, that they feel that uh, they could be in danger, they will attack. And they have these uh, big horns and stuff. So that's a, it's a nasty animal to be out in the wild and uh, come up against for sure. And, uh, you know, shoot him in the body, might not even stop him. That's the other thing I'm try point I'm trying to make. So That's, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. You know, Phil, we're going to take a short break, but we're, when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, more about how can they ever prove that Brian Laundrie, in fact, was the murderer of Gabby Petito. And B, will um, Chris and Roberta Laundrie ever be charged with any crime? And we're going to come back with that because people have a lot of questions. And uh, of course, we have the great. Attorney Joe Murray in the chat so he can straighten us out if he thinks we're wrong. 
So I'm going to go to his. Uh... Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of le legal counsel in New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Or you can just come on our podcast and contact him through the chat because he's always go. here, you know. So a lot of people want to know, you know, you know, weeks ago we came back with the uh, manner and cause of death of Gabby Petito, and the uh, the um, the cause of death, excuse me, the manner of death was homicide, murder, and the cause of death was strangulation by throttling. Now, again, scientifically, we're all satisfied that uh, that that's how, you know you can't. It's not obviously not going to be a suicide. It's not a natural death. Right, it's not uh, an accidental death, so what that leaves homicide. So someone strangled her, and it's it's in fact a murder. Circumstantially, of course, all the evidence points towards Brian Laundry, but can the authorities can we ever prove that that's what happened? Yeah, I, I think that. There's a lot of things that are undisclosed to the public. Um, you know, there was a search warrant uh, and evidence collection done on the van. Uh, for instance, when uh, Brian returned back to Florida, they took control of the van. They did an extensive crime scene investigation on that. And then there was the other things that occurred when the body was found. There was extensive crime scene investigation there. So we don't know what other elements of evidence may have been found. And then when we talk about Brian's suicide and the possibility of a note that we believe strongly could exist, maybe there was mention of uh, the death of Gabby Petito in that note. Now, uh, one other thing I want I saw a, a comment in the chat from Angie Eng, who we love. Um, she said, in, uh, police off the cuff, if the angry mob had already convicted him, meaning Brian, how do we know if someone found him first and killed him? Obviously, we don't know that, but I would feel very comfortable to say that the FBI came forward and law enforcement came forward and said it's a suicide. So there must be something else that's not, um, uh, you know, the handgun being missing from the home. Maybe the handgun is recovered. The ballistic evidence matches up and a suicide note. All of those things could be in play. I think that uh, that was a, a great comment and question. And I think it's kind of, we can really put it to sleep that uh, we don't think he was killed by someone outside of, uh, you know, a mob or anything like that. I don't think that that's a possibility at this point, Bill. You know, Phil, I, I agree with you, but, you know, to play devil's advocate, I, Mike, I want to know, I want my answer to my question. How sure. do you scientifically know that Brian Laundry committed suicide? What's, show me the science that you can prove that he pulled the trigger. It's very difficult to do when there's no arms and no fingers left. Uh, how do you prove that? Uh, you know, I want to know that. Yeah, I agree with you, Bill. It's uh, it's going to be uh, very, very uh, compelling to find the, those details out. Now, we don't know that they didn't recover any other body parts, that it was just called. There may have been other body parts. They never publicly released anything like that. But again, the gun would be very important, obviously. If the gun is found at the location, 
uh, if there's any evidence on the gun. And then if it's the same gun that's missing from the laundry home, uh, you know, he could have told his parents, listen, I'm going to go out. I need to get away. But he wanted to take the gun for protection from the elements. You know, I don't, I don't mean the rain and snow. I'm talking about the elements within the Mayakahachi Reserve. You know, these animals that we talked about and stuff like that. So, and then they could have maybe started when they didn't hear from him. They might have uh, started having second thoughts about uh, what he did or what his mental state was. And that's when they enlisted the help of the police department reporting a missing. And, you know, uh, th there's probably a lot of other things that we don't know, um, you know, uh, about what was found regarding Brian and again, what was found uh, on Gabby's body when she was found. So uh, until we have, you know, access to those, you know, the, the case folder, you're really not going to have a good idea of exactly what was recovered evidentiary wise. I don't know if we'll ever really uh, be privy to all the inside information on this investigation, because I think that they have no, they don't have to, uh, let the public know all the ins and outs. The, you know, you've investigated homicides, and we never turn over the most intimate details of an investigation to the public. The press can always file a freedom of information law if they want to dig that quickly. Let me just show some of the documents on Gabby Petito. Two-year-old left on a cross-country road trip with her boyfriend, Brian Laundry back in July. A month and a half ago, he returned alone and is now wanted by the FBI for credit card fraud. Authorities have not named him a suspect in her murder. The coroner also revealing today that he thinks Gabby died three to four weeks before the search crews found her body. That discovery, September 19th, in this camping area near Jackson, Wyoming. Which means the coroner estimates Gabby died sometime between August 22nd and August 29th. Now, according to events reported by law enforcement, the timeline gets a little more narrow because a witness spotted Gabby and Brian at a Mexican restaurant in Jackson, Wyoming on August 27th. Later that same day, between 6 and 6.30 p.m., somebody reported spotting their van near the campsite where searchers found Gabby's body. Then five days later, September the 1st, 10.26 a.m., police say the van, presumably driven by Brian, enters Northport, Florida. So based on that timeline and the new information from the coroner, Gabby Petito likely died sometime between the evening of August the 27th and the afternoon of August 30th. We'll break down more of what the coroner had to say in just a moment with a forensic pathologist, including what could be a revealing clue. But first, CNBC's Valerie Castro is here with us. The coroner seemed to reveal this other important nugget. And Chef, the coroner couldn't say very much to begin with today, but he did say that under Wyoming state law, he couldn't comment on any specifics in the autopsy report besides the cause and manner of death. But what he did say may give us some insight into what else he knows and has seen during the course of this investigation. He answered some general questions and was asked what it's been like for his small office to handle such a high profile case that has gotten national, if not international attention. This is what he said. Quite the media circus uh, and continues to be. Uh, unfortunately, uh, this is only one of, of many deaths uh, around the country uh, of uh, uh, people who are involved in domestic violence. 
people who are involved in domestic violence. Those are the words that he used seeming to connect Gabby's death to a relationship that involved domestic violence, something no other official involved in this case has stated. You might remember when Gabby and Brian were pulled over in Utah by police, and that was all captured on body camera video. At that time, those officers made the call that Brian was the victim of a domestic incident with Gabby. Brian Laundrie has not been named a murder suspect in this case, and no arrest warrant on any charges related to violent crime has been has been issued for him. Only a warrant for fraudulent use of a credit card. The Laundrie family did release a statement through their attorney following the coroner's press conference today that says, Gabby Petito's death at such a young age is a tragedy. While Brian Laundrie is currently charged with the unauthorized use of a debit card belonging to Gabby, Brian is only considered a person of interest in relation to Gabby Petito's demise. At this time, Brian is still missing, and when he is located, we will address the pending fraud charge against him. The Petito family says they will not be releasing any statement until her body is brought home. Her remains were still with the coroner's office while the autopsy was being conducted over the last several weeks. So that brings us back to there where there's still not, uh, you know, we can surmise by uh, certain evidence and certainly that uh, for that pathologist, I'm sure he didn't mean to slip out that he felt this was a domestic violence incident because that's, of course, pointing the finger directly at Brian Laundrie. But, you know, from circumstantial evidence, of course, it points uh, exactly at Brian Laundrie, you know, and we've discussed this numerous numerous times and uh but still will it goes back to the question there's a bunch of questions that everyone wants to have answered a uh, did how do they determine that brian laundry committed suicide b will he ever will he, we ever definitively know that he killed gabby petito and c will roberta and chris laundry ever be charged with any crime uh that when they talk about that that that's why the investigation is staying open, and there seems to be some strange occurrences in this case that might indicate that they potentially could be charged at some point, whether it be criminally or civilly. Uh, they could definitely have a civil case against them. Criminally, I don't know, but uh, you know, again, we're not privy to the inners and and the the real intense part of this investigation via the uh, case folder. You know, Bill, I really love that clip that you just played because Shepard Smith pointed out that it was about a three or four week time period from when her body was found that they believe was the time of death. Now, we went back to the 27th of August where, you know, it seems to me that if you go back to the 12th, August the 12th, that was the day that they were pulled over by the police. There was obviously a violent uh, dispute between Gabby and Brian. So uh, on the 27th, we know there was a bubbling up of emotion and anger where they were in the restaurant. He was, he was described to be enraged and stuff like that. And there was an argument where he had an argument with a person, I believe it was the manager of the restaurant or the hostess of the restaurant. And he was asked to leave and she went back in hysterical crying, apologizing. So we know that there was a pattern of uh, anger and emotion on that day. It, if I had a guess, I don't think he said it would go take it all the way to the 30th. He, he obviously made the point that they were both seen alive on the 27th, and he said it could have been the 30th. I don't think it was as late as that because he was back in Florida 
on the first at 1046 in the morning when his vehicle crossed a plate reader or whatever it was, uh, a toll. Um, so that wouldn't be enough time for him to have driven back from where the body was, uh, where Gabby's body was recovered and where he was last seen. So I think it's probably going to be, uh, this is an educated guess that was probably sometime on the 27th into the 28th when I think the actual murder took place. So with that said, I mean, it, that the, the, the exact timing of the death is not going to be greatly important to tie Brian to the murder other than the fact that he was in that area at that time. But there's probably other stuff. Um, again, I'm going to go back to what he wrote in his notebook. If there was a note found, if he made admissions about uh, causing the death of Gabby Petito. And again, she was strangled, which is very, um, you know, uh, if you have a domestic violence situation, a lot of times when domestic violence goes out of control, it's strangulation is the cause of death, the manner of death. So, um, you know, I think all the elements are there. Uh, there's probably a few that we're not privy to, but I think all the elements are there to say definitively in our minds. Uh, and I'm sure the family uh, probably feels the same way that he was responsible for the death. Uh, again, there are some assumptions in there. And, and uh, you know, like I said, we're not privy to all of the information. But uh, uh, again, I think that the family probably knows a lot more than we do. I would think that the FBI and the law enforcement agencies investigating uh, the case would sit down with them at some point and go over everything. So, uh, again, like you said, uh, you know, a media uh, journalist can do Freedom of Information Act uh, when the case is uh, down the road a little bit, they may uh, block out some of the, you know, they may redact some of the information, the specifics of it, but you might get a better understanding of what took place and what information they have based on that. You know, Phil, one of the things that uh, we we speak about the media and we spoke about how even when we're New York City police members that the media could be your friend and they could be your enemy. Certainly in regards to information coming out in regards to this case and other big cases, they're very helpful because they put the pressure on law enforcement to release information that they might never, ever release. But that constant badgering of their uh, public information officers and the constant badgering of politicians maybe surrounding the police departments that are investigating these major cases may result in information being released that maybe shouldn't be released uh, but it seems like the FBI, they stand resilient in their refusal to release information. And I sort of applaud that. I think, uh, I mean, sitting in the seat that I'm in now, I don't like it, of course. Right. But when I was sitting in the seat of a uh, detective sergeant for the New York City Police Department, I certainly didn't want information released to the press that would make our job that much harder. And so I sort of do applaud the FBI for withholding information. Look, we don't even know if they recovered a gun. <laughs> Tremendous. How how many seconds would it take on the NYPD for some person in the Deputy Commissioner of Public Information to give that? They'd know the make, the model, the caliber, whether there was DNA. They would know that within within minutes of the police department ascertaining all of those things. And that certainly is not helpful to the investigation. It's good for the public. Folks, I just want to uh, implore you, if you're not um, subscribed to Police Off the Cuff, 
please go on our YouTube site, hit that subscribe button, ring the bell, give us a thumbs up. We had have had so much uh, support from you guys in 2021, and we're looking forward to a huge year in 2022 uh, of, of just presenting the major cases as they come about on a police perspective, and more importantly, not just a police perspective, but an NYPD police perspective from people that have, you know, hundreds of years when you do the cumulative count of all the people we've had on here of uh, police and criminal investigation. So I hope you folks will stay with us, not just in 2021, but in 2022, which is right around the bend. And I just want to let everyone know how much we appreciate your support. Having said that, Phil, let's get back to, um, you know, one of the things they said about Gabby Petito was that. Well, can I just make a, uh, uh, I want to make a comment about the media. Now you, you brought sure. out some very good points. Now I want people to understand, yes, the media can be your best friend or your worst nightmare in an investigation. And the point I want to make is this, the media, I came on the police force in 1982, the media back then was reporting things inaccurately. I was involved in a shootout very early on in my career and they had all of the details uh, within four or five hours. It was in the New York post. They had everything wrong. Now with that said, the media has gotten worse in that respect. Now, when we say we don't want things released, you know, if I'm conducting an investigation, there's a dead body found, I'm going to have a lot of details about how that body was found, cause of death and different things like that. So when I go to question people, if it's reported in the news, they're going to know it ahead of time. And if a person is a suspect, they're going to know how to answer the questions that I'm going to have for them. Now, regarding, uh, you know, uh, how the person was found or where, where they were at the specific time that uh, the time frame that we're talking about. So you, you really can get tripped up in your investigation by stuff that's released to the media. You're going to be giving information to a possible suspect or a perpetrator in a crime uh, by doing that. So that's why a lot of times, Bill, you said it correct. When we were sitting in this seat, we want information publicly uh, announced so we could talk about it and we can decipher it. We can take it apart. We can tell the re people, our subscribers, the people, the listeners, uh, our fans, whatever you want to call them, the reasons for the different things that happened and the things that we would do. But now, again, when you're a, a detective and you're active and you're working on an investigation, you may not want a lot of information released to the public. So I just wanted to make that point. The reason that we're saying that is not that we're trying to be like, you know, oh, we don't want everybody to know what's going on. It's not that at all. It really can screw up an investigation if too much information is given out. Certain things like the person was found dead, the person's name a lot of times become public information, different things like that. But specifics, you know, uh, a bullet wound or a stab wound or a strangulation, we don't want those things out there because, again, sometimes you have crazies. You put somebody in the box and they could start confessing to a murder they had nothing to do with based on information they got from a newspaper or, or a media uh, broadcast, you know. So there's a lot of different reasons why we don't want that. And I just wanted to touch on that, Billy. Phil, I even gave you the screen all by yourself for that that whole <laughs> that whole little soliloquy you had there. Joe Murray, uh, I love Joe Murray's comments because he always wants to throw us in another direction. But this is a good point. This is what if point. Brian's suicide note he denies killing his beloved Gabby. Look, this case, uh, the the murder of Gabby Petito, has to be solved. If Brian Petito, uh, Brian Petito, Brian Laundry didn't do it. They should find that out. That out in the investigation. If he did do it, they should also find that out. But 
it shouldn't stop just because we think, oh, he he potentially was the killer. We want to have, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, Joe. That's what they say in court, right? And uh, beyond the reason, but, but again, this case will never be tried. So how strong is the evidence that he did do it opposed to he didn't do it? You know, Billy, even though let's say he did put in a note that he didn't kill her, that still doesn't mean there's not enough evidence recovered, uh, garnered from crime scene at where Gabby's body was found, the uh, vehicle in question, the van. Um, there could have been video evidence along the way uh, implicating him, as well as uh, electronic evidence, meaning his cell phone, computer, uh, just because uh, he says he didn't do it in a note, that's still not uh, enough to say he's not responsible for homicide. And we don't know what searches he did. Maybe he did searches on on how to strangle somebody. There's a lot of things that uh, we are not priv- privileged to. And, um, you know, we don't know. We know the Brian Laundry that we saw on video uh, from the Moab police and stuff like that, uh, you know. But we don't know the real Brian Laundry. And uh, I'm sure that the investigators digging deep into his social media, digging deep into his past. They know who the real Brian Laundrie is. And I think that that was definitely a great point that Joe brought up. Yeah. We don't know what he put, if there even is a note, what he put in there, but um, whatever it was um, just if his mere statement that he didn't kill her is not going to exclude him from being the perpetrator responsible for the murder. You know, Phil, I would take a suicide note or a, uh, you know, something to clear yourself sort of or clear your conscience, almost like a dying declaration. And I would consider it to be pretty much 99% the truth. So if he, in fact, did kill her and he wrote that in a suicide note, I would think that that's pretty damn believable, almost to the level, and Joe Murray, you could comment on this, almost to the level of a dying declaration. And a dying declaration for folks that aren't in law enforcement, it's viewed as pretty damn solid evidence in the criminal justice field. If someone tells you, yes, I killed so-and-so and then they die, that's considered pretty damn strong evidence. Joe Murray, you have any comment on that? I've taken a dying declaration when I was in uniform early on in my career, Bill. And yes, that was it was viewed as uh, very powerful evidence. It was a young boy that was stabbed in the chest and he came running up to the police car. And I had seen him from about a block away. Run, We were parked and it was like a busy uh, afternoon in, in Flatbush. And I saw this guy running towards and I noticed that it looked like a color block shirt. And I, I said to my partner, I think this kid's running towards us. The kid with the color block shirt, it was all blood. Blood was pumping out of him. He just about died in our arms before we could, uh, you know, get him into the ambulance. But before he died, before he went unconscious, he told, you know, naturally what happened. I was stabbed. Who did it? He told us. Detectives went out. There was other evidence besides that dying declaration that they made the arrest on the case. There were witnesses on the scene and stuff like that. But uh, I, one or two times in my career, I was present during a dying declaration. And yes, it's it's viewed as very, very powerful. I mean, person, you know, is going out of the picture and the last words out of their mouth. You would think at that point, they, they got the feeling they know they're dying. That's uh, It's a powerful statement. Well, you know, even the great attorney Joe Murray put his stamp of approval on my statement. Yes, Bill, that is a dying declaration. So I got to take it that I'm pretty damn smart. <laughs> yes, you are, my friend. Yes, you if I, are. If I can get Joe Murray to put his stamp of approval. You know, folks, I hope everyone um, 
has enjoyed their Thanksgiving and you still got, uh, it's nice that if you can have the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and really enjoy that whole weekend with your family. And, you know, we've covered so many stories in the past year and uh, we're going to continue. This was one of the most um, sort of intense, uh, no doubt the most um, media from all over the world was uh, involved in this case and still involved in this case. And, you know, when you look at that, sometimes people criticize it. Oh, people are killed every day. Why was there such interest in this case? And, you know, look, why are people interested in certain movies? You know, you watch certain movies because that's what, that's what you're attracted to. This was a story of two young people. You know, they seem to be in love, traveling the country in a van, which a lot of people, they think of, oh, wow, how cool. Let's travel the country in a van. A lot of interest. and then. One of them winds up dead by homicide, by strangulation. The other one uh, flees. And again, we can't say he's the killer, but it certainly seems to point that way. And then weeks later, he winds up dead. So it's so, you know, if you think of the old story, Romeo and Juliet, you know, it seems somewhat like that, except it, didn't, it seemed like the families accepted both of them. So instead, it's a 21st century Romeo and Juliet and sprinkle a little domestic violence into this case and sprinkle, uh, you know, some intrigue in regards to not really definitively 100% knowing what happened and who did what. And that's why it's been such an interesting, interesting case and an interesting story, not just for people in this country, but all over the world. You know, Bill, the media drives whether or not a story story will pick up traction or not. And I don't think, you know, there's these pundits or different people uh, that say, oh, it was driven by race or different things like that. It's not about that with the media. It's about money with the media. If a case is becoming popular and they can sell advertising and all of that stuff, that's what their goal is. Their goal is to be popular. Their goal is to be relevant. And the media controls what stories they really follow up on. You know, it costs money for a media company, let's say a local news or whoever it is, to send out a crew. They're paying those people. They're paying big salaries to reporters. Get them involved. They do research and stuff like that. So it's all about money. That's what it comes down to. I don't think there's any truth to, uh, you know, the fact that, well, if it's a white person or a black person or whatever, a wealthy person or a, a homeless person, uh, I don't think that that really drives the media, whether or not they're going to follow a story. I think it's all about if it's going to be popular and if people are, are plugged into it. This was like an all-American story, like you said, Bill. They were traveling across the country in a van. It sounds exotic. It sounds uh, really, really like a fun thing to do. They were uh, documenting their trip, putting it on social media. So that also brought a lot of uh, interest into the case. And then once she was missing and he went back to Florida, those elements right there, you know, she's now unaccounted for, for days or a week. He's back in Florida with her vehicle, used her credit card. And then the family shuts down with an attorney. That's what caused the media uproar right there. That was big. And again, you know, um, every missing person should have some type of media, per, uh, media attention that to help find them. 
a lot of times these cases don't end like this one ended. Sometimes people returned. There was just a case in Jersey where they had an all-out big search going for a girl, and it turned out she was being abused by her own mother. Her mother went on the news and said, you know, please help find my daughter, and they had this big push. It didn't gain national attention. It was very local, but at the end of the day, they found her. She was hiding out in Manhattan. She, I think she was about 17 years old, and the reason was is that her mother was a domestic violence abuser, and uh, so there you have it. Uh, a lot of times these cases uh, – don't get the, the media attention they deserve, but in this case, it got just overwhelming uh, media attention, and uh, that's really what it's driven by. I don't think the media has an agenda to you know block out uh, people that aren't well-to-do or anything like that. You know, and I think the uh, domestic violence component of this case um, sort of brought in a lot of people that, um, you know, a lot of people criticize the Moab police over this. We uh, injected our opinion into that. And, uh, you know, domestic violence is not just a, a problem in this country. It's an international problem. Sure. And some cultures it's worse than the culture that we live in. In our culture, it's, um, at least by the criminal justice system, it's intolerable, but not, you know, there's mistakes made. You haven't said that it's intolerable. Just that recent videotape of the former pro football player that just, tossed his wife around like she was a sack of potatoes. Oh, I saw that. That was disgusting. Uh, it was, was horrendous. Yeah. Uh, maybe maybe it wasn't even his wife. Maybe it was his baby mama. I don't know. But yeah. I know they had a child in common. So those things are very sickening to see. And I think that draws a lot of people into this when they see the horrendousness of domestic violence and when it's perhaps not addressed in the way they think it should have been even though from our point of view, I thought we thought that the Moab police did a pretty good job. You can't predict what's going to happen in the future. And what I believe that that occurred, um, it seems like Gabby was murdered on the 27th, which would have been, I, I believe, like 15 days after the incident. Uh, August 12th, the Moab police pulled them over. Yep. So you can't really, like, we well, a lot of people will still point fingers, but I don't think that, had someone been arrested that day, I don't think that would have changed the outcome 15 days later. I mean, look, we can, none of us can predict the future, but that just happens to be, um, be my feelings. Guys, um, also, you know, I just want you to know, um, Joe Murray has his own channel now called Allegedly Guilty. We um, implore you to support Joe and Angie, uh, the two great people. They've helped us out tremendously in our channel. And I just want to mention that Duty Ron has a show tonight, and I, I believe it's at 8 p.m., where he's bringing in Dr. Marx, who was, I think, a brilliant anthropologist. And perhaps some of the questions that we raised tonight, us two artists of investigation, well, you'll now have the scientists of investigation to compare uh, to, and you can make your own decisions. But look, we when I see something that I don't 100% agree with, I say, I, I, I state my purpose and I state my feelings. And I one of the big questions I have is what made them say this was a suicide? And I'd like to know scientifically, how did they come to that determination? And maybe I'll get, we'll get an answer tonight on Duty Ron's show. But minus that, I don't know how. And again, we've mentioned, you know, I almost feel like we're getting redundant. We uh, mentioned circumstantial evidence. But circumstantial evidence is not a slam dunk. This is a suicide. You know, 
And of course, there is also other physical evidence. But what what leads him to believe that someone else couldn't have pulled that trigger? That's my biggest question. Good point, Billy. You know, going back to the domestic violence uh, angle of this whole case, uh, that video you noted, um, we're very fortunate that in 2021 that domestic violence of that source, sort or any sort, whether it be male on female, female on male, whatever, it's just totally unacceptable. And if you watch that video, I, I, it's just unbelievable how a 300-pound uh, muscle-bound a football player was tossing that woman around like a rag doll. I mean, he he hit her into some objects and they broke. I mean, I, I hope she's okay, and I hope that he's brought to justice and arrested, and 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 I hope he loses his big contract. I mean, you don't you don't do that to anyone, especially uh, your your baby's mother. So uh, just glad that it's really unacceptable, and I think that that had a lot to do with the uproar in this particular case that it was a domestic violence thing, and uh, you know. Great points, Billy, about uh, the suicide. How did we jump to suicide on the Brian Laundry case when we only know the little bit of uh, facts that the, uh, the the skull was found and is obviously a bullet hole? How did they jump from that to uh, you know the uh, the suicide angle? Again, the the, the chat showed uh, some of the people asking questions about that. Uh, you know, it, just because a bullet hole is found in a person's skull, that doesn't mean that they actually pulled the trigger. There has to be some other factors that would be, uh, you know, part of this investigation for them to jump right to a suicide. Uh, so I think that in the coming days, maybe on tonight's show, Duty Ron will have some other facts that might uh, – lead towards uh, the suicide angle. But in the coming days, we may revisit this case again when more information is uh, is uh, put out to uh, the public. 100%. Folks, I'd just let, like to let you know that we have some really good shows coming up. We had to adjust our schedule a little bit from a couple of changes. But uh, um, the show that we were going to do on the Boston Marathon that was supposed to be on uh, November 30th, we're actually going to do on December 7th. And we're trying to bring on the the real sergeant involved uh, in the shooting with the Zarnayev brothers during the Boston Marathon aftermath. And I think that will be pretty damn interesting. And on the 30th, we have the substitute guest from Scotland Yard coming on, and we're going to compare notes as to how murders are investigated in the U.S. as compared to how they're investigated in London. And then we have um, John Beza, who is a one of the – most highly respected sex crime investigators who just recently wrote a book on that. He's coming on uh, December 15th. So we're trying to bring you the best guess we can possibly get from law enforcement and even from the other side of the fence, you know, you, Billy, you know, I, I want to make mention, I'm still in touch with Sandy blue eyes, which is Chaz Palmateri's buddy, very close friend. Uh, we're still working on getting him. They did say that Chaz was going to come on again. We're just trying to figure out some dates. I know that Sandy is uh, with Chaz this weekend, uh, celebrating the Thanksgiving weekend. And it's just going to be a matter of time. We're going to put it together. Uh, I won't say 100% just yet because I don't have we don't have the dates in stone yet. But a very good chance that we're going to get Sandy Blue Eyes and Chaz Palmateri, the well-known actor, back on police off the cuff sometime very soon, hopefully in the next few weeks, let's say. You know, in 2022, uh, hopefully our popularity will skyrocket and, uh, you know, Philly will be not just straight out of Brooklyn, but it'll be straight out of the United States and people will say that's <laughs> Phil Grimaldi and uh, we'll, we'll pick up more international fans. 
But guys, I want to just thank you for all your support. And I want to wish everyone an amazing Thanksgiving. It's not over yet. You know, don't think because Thursday's over. It's still, you still have the rest of the weekend. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving, Philly. Final goodbyes. Final goodbyes. Uh, So much to be thankful for in life. God bless everybody. God bless all of our subscribers and fans. Enjoy the weekend. Have fun with your family. Uh, Don't eat too much. You know, try to, you know, not indulge too much. But God bless. Enjoy everybody and stay safe. Have a great night, everyone. One episode just ain't enough.